0: This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio.
1: Visual artist Jenny Watson has been making work for uh, several decades. She's been described as a maverick unconventional and she's also done fascinating things melding the spirit of punk rock with um, a reclamation of what could be considered kind of the soft and girly memories of childhood. Jenny welcome to Triple R. Pleasure. So you've got uh, a major exhibition currently showing at Heidi Museum of Modern Art in Berlin, The Fabric of Fantasy. This is a, a retrospective of, what, four decades of artistic practice?
2: Yes, going back to 1972. The first painting it was painted when I was at the Gallery School in 1972.
1: The Gallery School, which is now the Victorian College of the That's Arts. That's right.
2: It was just changing when I was a student there. Yeah.
1: What was it that initially attracted you to the visual arts?
2: Well... I always painted at home because my mother's sister was a children's book illustrator and author. Her name was Evelyn Dare. So there were always paints around and watercolour papers and this was not a strange territory. And then so I did art at school and then in high school out in Box Hill North I had fabulous art teachers, Janice Dunkley, now deceased, David Williams, who became head of art at Camberwell Grammar eventually. Um, Wonderful, wonderful art teachers and... um, applied to the Gallery School, which in those days only had 80 students across a three-year degree and then a postgraduate degree, so a very small, studio-oriented school, and off I went.
1: Now, it, while you were at uh, the the Gallery School, you then, by the late 70s, you went to, to London briefly and then came back to Australia? Well...
2: Well, there's a little bit, there's a very interesting bit in between there. And that was I taught high school for two years and I I knew I could not stay in a high school classroom. So a very generous and very great artist, Gareth Sansom, who currently has a retrospective at the NGV, gave me some teaching hours at Caulfield Institute And that was a fatalistic moment because a very young Nick Cave was in the process of dropping out, but he asked me to come and see his band. So I joined the 15 enthusiastic punters at the Tiger Lounge, paying $2 to get in and probably $2 for a big beer in those days, but that was the beginning of a a long involvement with the Melbourne music scene, which was becoming very exciting.
1: So that was, what, the very first gig for The Boys Next Door?
2: It wasn't the very first. The very first had been in a church hall somewhere and I was involved in a car accident on the way there, so I didn't get to that one, but I was Ah, certainly at the first one at the Tiger Lounge.
1: Fantastic the spirit of punk has had a real influence on your work mm. uh, t- talk to us about that and in particular because uh, your work is uh, is quite autobiographical in mm-hmm. some ways, there's oh, a, a fascinating oh. use of text and as I said you oh. have this history over oh. many decades oh. of oh. Um, reclaiming what some might see as soft, gentle, girly, feminine, <laughs> yeah. particularly uh, oh. at a time when the oh. art world was dominated by kind of brash men oh. <laughs> so reclaiming this kind of yeah feminist mm. and female mm. Mm. power and mm. injecting it with that energy of punk. Talk yeah. to us about that.
2: Well, it took me a while to get to that point because I started off doing big, ambitious, realistic paintings. But then as other things kicked in, and particularly the Melbourne music scene, um, uh, yeah, I, the artists who are of most interest to me um, were incredibly radical, um, I would say <clears throat> Jackson Pollock I would say a lot of the early 70s New York feminists. I would even say a theoretician like Joseph Kassuth. Um The the people who had an influence on me were, were really creating creating their own setup up without paying too much attention to art historical mores. So for a young woman artist to do that in Melbourne in the 70s was pretty wild and, um, you know, the music kind of helped it and... Um, you
1: know, I had I had that, that DIY spirit of punk.
2: <sighs> absolutely, absolutely,
1: yeah. yeah. Now, one of the things uh, I read a, a great quote in an interview with you from uh, earlier this year <laughs> um, that. Uh, let's see, now I have to find it. Um, I had this idea that I could filter this very ordinary perspective of a girl into this highfalutin conceptual art and in mm. a way that's always been my experiment and the writer goes on to comment about yeah. the fact that uh, your, your paintings are remarkable for their warmth and intimacy which are really rare in the world of conceptual art.
2: Well, um, that is a, a huge existential question. I still teach... And most students are concerned with, what am I going to paint? Even if they have incredible skills, what are they going to paint? What is their content going to be? And, you know, through a fair bit of thinking, I thought, well, can my life, you know, the life of a suburban girl, very feminine, love the Beatles, mad about horses, made little dresses on Saturday afternoon, could that be a subject of art? And and in a way, that's my ongoing experiment.
1: (laughs) Well, it certainly seems to have been an experiment that has answered the question that, yes, it can be a subject of art. But how long before you and your work began to be taken seriously? Because I would imagine that there would have been quite a bit of pushback.
2: um, Look, I've had really bad years. Um, I've had really bad years. Um, Between 77 and 81, I didn't sell a painting. I'd emerged as this interesting young painter who painted suburban houses. But then I was going into... um, text panels and portraits of friends, musicians, artists and so on. And um, yeah, I've had years where I didn't sell. Um, I then sort of made an effort to start working overseas. I did start working overseas in Germany in 1990. But Actually achieving that milestone, it, it's not all beer and skittles after that. You no,
1: kind it swings and roundabouts.
2: Uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, because, for example, you were chosen as one of, uh, I think only the second or third Australian woman to be as an artist to be featured uh, at the Venice Biennale, yeah. which perhaps came too early in your career. You've said.
2: Um, Yes, look, I have said that. I mean, it was a wonderful initiative by Judy and I to to actually make that happen. But um, for a 42-year-old, Um, Australian who hadn't had that much exposure internationally it it was a little bit overwhelming I mean I I wasn't ready for a whole lot of press conferences and cameras being stuck in your face in fact I saw a little bit of footage recently where I was meeting and greeting people before the big opening but I had not had my hair done (laughs) you know I, I wasn't into what it what it meant to be an artist representing their country in Europe. And, and that's something you learn along the way and you have to learn pretty fast or you won't survive.
1: So after the, the Venice Biennale then, which uh, was 1993, your career continued, mm. but I'm told the, the global financial crisis <laughs> impacted quite significantly on your international career.
2: Yeah, well, I had these um, a bunch of galleries in Europe that were willing to show me. And then there was a sort of domino falling effect where um, New York kicked in, Japan kicked in. I, I had a great time. I was suddenly showing with sort of 10 galleries worldwide and had a fantastic 10 years going to and from Europe, living in New York, living in Germany, speaking German, driving around an old Mercedes. They were really great years. But uh, when the GFC hit Australia in 2012, I couldn't sell a painting I couldn't get any teaching. Um, yeah, that was that's only five years ago, and that was a real low point again.
1: It reinforces that uh, no one goes into the art world to 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 make money. <laughs> you go into it because you're driven, because you're passionate. Yeah, um,
2: yeah in
1: that's f- right. Uh, Sasha Grishin uh, cool. described you in a piece in the conversation yeah. as a compulsive rule breaker. Would you agree?
2: Yes. Yeah. I I think. Um, As a child, I was like that. I think as a teenager, I was like that. Um, Almost as soon as I've got something going and looking good, I have to change it. So, for example, some aspects of my work that are are now highly sought after, like the red velvet paintings with a black horse tail on it, if I'd kept doing those, that would have been my signature work and I probably could have settled down to having a really comfortable life just doing those works, but I can't do that would
1: have been a bit dull turning them out year after year.
2: There, there is a huge problem with um, creative people getting comfortable. I think you do have to stay close to the edge.
1: So your work, for people who haven't seen it, if they haven't been out to Heidi yet, uh, where The Fabric of Fantasy uh, opened on the 4th of November, running through until the 4th of March. Um, uh, uh, My colleague uh, from Arts Hub, Gina Fairley, uh, says your works have an everyday feel, familiar scenes with horses and frocks, ribbons and pretty detail, populated by Watson's own image and her alter egos, sliding between fiction and autobiography. Talk to us about alter egos in art. Why you... Mm. choose to sometimes represent yourself but then other times mm. fictional versions of yourself in yeah. your work.
2: Well, um, now someone said, and I can't remember who, but they said that um, any portrait of anything or anyone or any animal painted sensitively is actually a portrait of the artist. So I think I've used that in quite a direct way where, you know, if a horse is a beautiful, elegant animal, then maybe that's part of what I want to be. Same for a distressed woman, you know, who's maybe got a black eye somehow, um, but even a vase of flowers. If, if the painter is painting that with feeling, it's something to do with them. So that's, I feel that's how alter egos work
1: if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with visual artist Jenny Watson, who is the subject of a major exhibition, The Fabric of Fantasy at Heidi Museum of Modern Art at the moment. Uh, It originally showed at the MCA in Sydney before coming down here. Uh, Jenny, now you have, as we've heard, you grew up in suburban Melbourne and that is still reflected in your work. You now live in Queensland. That's right. uh, And one of the key parts of your life living in Queensland is owning horses. Mm. Why are horses such a a subject of (laughs) inspiration and fascination for you? Well,
2: I had horses as a a child and a teenager and then I I gave it all up for art school and the Beatles and all that sort of thing. I actually saw the Beatles at Festival Hall, by the way. I'm that old. Um, um, But horses were always a sort of escape for me, another world. So in 1982, after five years of pretty full-on art music activity, probably going to gigs four nights a week, I just woke up one morning and thought, I've got to do something different. And I, I learned to ride again and I went out and bought a horse and um, that has been a remaining passion.
1: Do they provide stability, sanity and the, the, the chaos of the art world?
2: I think people who are responsible for animals are very sane because feeding an animal, is the, that's what you do first thing in the morning. And people around horses and horse trainers are usually fantastic, very disciplined people. Then there's also the beauty and then the um, actual physical discipline of writing and my hobby is dressage.
1: (laughs) Now, you said you also teach as well. Yeah. What do you gain from teaching? What does that give you that satisfies you beyond
2: just... I I think if you're somebody with 50 years' experience of trying to make paintings and you're teaching people with five years' experience of trying to make paintings, I think there's going to be a very interesting exchange. And I love teaching, and I dare say my students love me. And, um, yeah, we, we kick it around. We go and see exhibitions. We talk about the old days, you know, the music stuff. Um, we do practical things like, you know, how to make a stretcher. And, um, It's really a lot of fun.
1: Now, you said it's an exchange. Is it a two-way exchange? Do you get something out of the the energy and the ideas of the the young people? Yes,
2: you do because young artists, very young artists, are extremely arrogant. So they will often ask a question or make a statement that that nobody else would dare. You know, it's it's quite good to be... um, back at the rock face in that way.
1: I've spoken to a lot of artists and writers over the years who said that, for example, mentoring is enormously rewarding because mm. you end up looking at your own practice That's through right. the prism of the young people you're That's working right. with.
2: yeah. You might even be alerted to a book that you haven't discovered yet. Yeah, so it is a two-way thing.
1: Now... The exhibition, The Fabric of Fantasy, as we mm-hmm. said, is on now until the 4th of March at Heidi Museum of Modern Art, 7 Templestowe Road, Bulleen. More info at www.heidi.com.au. Jenny, given that you have decades of experience as an artist, I'm curious to know, do, if young artists come to you saying, please tell me what to do, give me some advice, <laughs> How sh- should, I, should I have an art career, what do you say?
2: Um, well, I'm quite honest with them about, the ups and downs that I've had. But what they're usually concerned with is the first step. And the first step is showing work. So what I usually advise is if they haven't had a sort of million-to-one shot where a gallery has offered them a show, they hire a space with a bunch of buddies, they paint it white, they go out and buy some wine and plastic glasses, they show work. And then with that you would invite everyone in town that you want to see that work and uh, miracles do happen yeah you can be picked up from that
1: so again it's that spirit of diy that was an inspiration back in the punk days (sighs) absolutely jenny watson many thanks for joining us thank you My next guests have joined us in the studio to talk about the 14th Russian Resurrection Film Festival. I'm joined in the studio by uh, Nicholas Maximov, who is the festival director. Welcome. Uh, good morning. Uh, and also joined by the festival's special guest, uh, Karen Shaknazarov, uh, fr- a filmmaker from Russia. Welcome to Triple. Good morning. Let's begin, Nicholas, with the, the festival as a whole. As I said, this is the, uh, the the 14th iteration of the festival. There's clearly a hunger for Russian films in Australia, given that it's now screening in multiple capitals, and when it began, it was a much smaller festival screening, I think, in just three cities. Mm.
3: Yeah, so we have grown sort of over the past 14 years, even to the, to the um, respect that, uh, you know, in 2013 we were officially acknowledged as the largest festival of Russian cinema outside of Russia. So, yeah, I think it's um, quite a small, uh, big feat for us. And um, as you said, we take in capital cities around Australia. We also do a short season in uh, Auckland in New Zealand. And who knows, uh, we're actually looking to maybe um, do a short season of the festival in Singapore as well because you know, our guests sort of fly from Moscow and then Singapore's a good
4: halfway stop.
1: Yeah. Kyren, does it surprise you that Russian cinema is so popular
4: in Australia? Uh, uh, I'm surprised a little bit, yes, but from the other side, it's it's a great honour for us, for filmmakers from Russia that, to show here our films and, and we are grateful for Nicholas for making this festival here for many years, already 14 years now, so it's... it's Great chance to to, to visit Australia to show films here.
1: And, Nicholas, you've chosen Karen's uh, feature film to open at the festival, Anna Karenina Vronsky's Story, which uh, many people will be familiar with the story of Anna Karenina. But why did you choose this film for the opening night feature?
3: Well, first of all, because, you know, um, I think audiences uh, outside of Russia are very familiar with, you know, Um, classic Russian literature, you know, from War and Peace to Dostoevsky pieces and obviously uh, Anna Karenina. Uh, But what really struck me about this particular film is that it's not a rehash of the story that we know. Um, Karen Nazarov, he might correct me, but uh, he actually, uh, you know, wrote the screenplay for this and um, it actually starts where... Um, Anna Karenina the the literary piece stopped so it's sort of in a way like a continuation at the same time as having flashbacks to to um, you know uh, the story surrounding Anna Karenina and of course her tragic death
1: I vividly remember, I think, a BBC television series of Anna Karenina, which I must have seen as a child, uh, and her death, which I just found incredibly confronting. One of the things that I found fascinating about the film, which I've only watched about a third of because I prefer to see a film with an audience rather than on the computer at home. But the fact that Vronsky is telling the story, and as he tells us, Early in in the film, people remember what suits them, and in love there is no truth. To which Anna's uh, son Sergei replies, "All right, tell me your truth." Uh, so this is a version of the story, a truth. Why did you want to tell this particular version of the Anna Karenina story?
4: uh you see when. When I was young, I read the, the novel by Tolstoy, and I was all, all the time was interested what 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 the fate of the Vronsky after 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 the end of the novel of the, and uh, so I tried to create this in the film. It's uh, we we didn't change anything inside the novel, but we just add some new stories about his fate after 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 Anna. It's a beautifully shot film Talk to us about working with the
1: cinematographer Who's having to work in a range of I imagine fairly challenging climates Everything from uh, snowy uh, railway platforms Through to uh, kind of uh, recreating uh, scenes during the war between Russia and Japan in 1904 in what looked like kind of hot, dusty conditions. You've also got sumptuous ballroom sequences. It is exquisitely shot. Talk to us about the process of working with the cinematographer to capture your vision. My English is not so. so,
4: was, so okay. Maybe,
3: maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tell
4: me. Tell me. Tell me. Tell me. Tell me. Tell me. Tell me. two times in it it 's the The period of Russian-Japanese War, which happened in uh, 1904, and and, uh, this is the middle of the 19th century when uh, the story between the love story between Anna and uh, Vronsky was made. So it's two periods, and it was need uh, a lot of work to create these two periods in the screen. And uh, I also made uh, TV series for eight TV for for TV and this film and and eight series for TV, but I think it's different films. Meanwhile, so shooting the TV series and the
1: film simultaneously.
4: Одновременно. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Which this must have been... My, I'm sorry about my English. <laughs> I, I'm sorry about
1: my Russian. Your English is far better than my Russian, which is non-existent. Uh, yeah. Was it challenging to... Was it hard to shoot for TV and for cinema at the same time? It's different.
4: different. It's absolutely different. Uh, it was my first experience because I'm, I work. I made about twenty films, feature long feature films, but never work for, for series. And it's uh, open. It's it's another it's another profession. It's absolutely another thing. And that's, it was interesting to try myself. Uh, may, maybe in some ways, uh, TV series. Uh, this is the future of the cinema because it's become more and more popular. So. But I like cinema more. <laughs>
1: Nicholas, how vibrant is the Russian film industry? I read an article in Newsweek from 2016, which, in which uh, Russia's state film studio, uh, Roskino, announced that the majority of Russian film productions do not break even and rely on uh, 90 million US uh, on average of government spending to ensure that they can be made. Uh, how vital, how successful is the Russian film sector generally?
3: Um, well, like you said, they do rely a lot on state funding. Like Australia? Like, like Australia. So in a way, the film industry in Russia is sort of akin to what sort of, you know, the film industry is like here in Australia. Uh, having said that, I think producers are, f- you know, finding the the resources necessary, you know, to boost their budgets to make really quality sort of films coming out of Russia um, You know, we've obviously spoken about Karen's film, um, uh, which sort of has Moss Film backing behind it. But then there are other producers in Russia, such as um, uh, Bondarchuk, who uh, actually has a film in our uh, festival called Attraction. Um, He also made uh, Stalingrad, which um, you may have seen a few years ago. So um, filmmakers, I think, are coming out with more... um, Uh, I I suppose for Russia, I I don't want to use the word experimental films, but they are making films that they want to make. Whereas maybe, say, five or six years ago, it was predominantly art house, you know, art house cinema. Today, I think um, Russian filmmakers are making films that are more accessible to the general public.
1: We've certainly seen a rise in genre filmmaking and that's reflected in your festival program this year. We've got uh, an alien invasion film, for example, and previously uh, Russian cinema in, uh, in the, the past decade. We've seen supernatural horror and, and fantasy becoming popular as well. Talk to us about some of the other highlights of your festival program this year.
3: Um, so I think, um, well, what you know, what we sort of um, aim to do is uh, celebrate the best of new and old Russian cinema. And uh, when we talk about new, we, uh, the festival committee tries to select a range of genres like you mentioned. So, you know, we might view, say, 30 films and then try and select one or two really strong films in each particular genre. Um you know, for instance, uh, a very we've got two, I suppose, films about the space race with the United States. Um, first of all, there's Kisilov's uh, Spacewalkers," uh, which was quite a big hit in, in Russia when it was released earlier this year. Uh, and the reason why Russia is celebrating that is that it's actually the 70th anniversary since Gagarin first went into space. Uh, the second one is Salute 7. Which uh focuses on uh more of a th- the disaster side I suppose of the space race when an unmanned spaceship was sort of um you know out of control and headed to you know crash somewhere in earth and um, uh the Soviet authorities obviously needed to secure this unmanned space station before it crashed and before you know the Americans were to intervene so very much a Cold War sort of type space race discussion. Um, And if that's sort of too heavy for you, then, you know, there's John Malkovich in About Love for Adults Only, so an American actor in a Russian film all about love, the universal, you know, story of love. Um, It's quite moving at the same time. It's a very funny and enjoyable film. So, yeah, it's basically about a visiting lecturer who happens to be John Malkovich and he's teaching Russian... ..or not teaching, but he's discussing with uh, his Russian audience um, what it takes to preserve love in, you know, contemporary society.
1: A question, uh, Karen, for you. What's the difference between films being made in Russia today versus films that were made in the old Soviet Union how kind of, how different are films now versus films then
4: no the man think that we have now we have no censorship now so it's uh, we can it's in the Soviet Union we it was easy to 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 make films because it was uh, easy to to find finance from state because state obliged for financing the the, the the production of films, but from the other side you have the problems with, with censorship it's uh, it was uh, it was usual but now we have no problems it's we we, we, we have not so so good in financing <laughs> it's it's another <laughs> More free market. <laughs> Those state until now support uh, cinema, but it's not not so stable like it was in Soviet Union. But from the other side, you have more chances to to, to make films how do you want. It's uh, so it's 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 I think the main re- the main uh, the main how to say, uh, advantage. Uh, 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 the, uh, I think yes. <laughs> the main
3: advantage is that yeah, you can make anything you want.
1: Can you make anything you want, though? Because, for example, Russia has fairly strong laws banning what has been described as gay propaganda or the promotion of homosexuality. Uh, You are uh, a supporter, uh, an outspoken supporter of Putin. Um, Would you be able to make uh, a gay film in Russia now, for example?
4: for Against a gay film? uh i think yes but not by the state money <laughs> yes <laughs> if, if you find if you want p- private money and uh, yeah, i think you can do i i don't know any example but uh, i see such examples in theater some some uh, stage uh, it's, it's have something what what do you mean like gay 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 feelings
1: uh, a gay romance for example. yeah,
4: <laughs> Yes, but so I, I think I never tried but I, I think if you find a private investment, it's possible. <laughs> the Russian Resurrection Film Festival
1: is opening tonight uh, with the film Anna Karenina Vronsky's Story. Uh, it's screening at 6.30 p.m., at Acme, at Federation Square. Uh, opening night tickets are $65, but it's also screening on the 18th of November, uh, where tickets are more regular prices because tonight, of course, is the opening night party. So the ticket gets you into the film and a party, but also screening again on Saturday, the 18th of November at 4.15pm. For more information, visit RussianResurrection.com, the 14th Rus- Russian Resurrection Film Festival, on from tonight until the 19th of November. Nicholas and Karen, thank you both very much for joining us. We're going to talk now about independent theatre and the Poppy Seed Festival, which uh, kicked off with its original run in 2015. It's a festival dedicated to and celebrating Melbourne's independent theatre sector, and this year presents a range of new theatrical works, including the show we're about to talk about, which has the intriguing title of Alexithymia, I'm joined in the studio by Tom Middleditch, the author of the play, who is also the artistic director of A Theatre Company. Tom, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. Very great pleasure. <laughs> I think to begin with, we need to just let people know what is alexithymia? Sure. Well,
0: alexithymia is the name put to a specific experience felt by about about 85% of those on the spectrum, and from a study that I've been reading recently, about 10% of the world's population, it is the inability to put words to felt emotions. It's simple as that, as a starting point. But the more you think about it, the more you think what that implies long-term for a human being, the more it becomes apparent how distinctive it can make a person
1: so an inability to name or describe emotions Hmm.
0: well the basic idea there is when people say emotions they're actually describing two things sensation and emotion. You feel things in your body and you give them a name and that name is an emotion and you let whatever that emotion is tell you what to do or how you're feeling or what you should be doing. And you identify really, really closely with what these emotions are and you attach a sense of self-worth to how you react in the moment. And if you did not have that innate immediacy of understanding, and you had to stop and think and track and go in and go, OK, what's, what's going on? I feel like the third and fourth vertebrae is now just that little bit pushed further apart. Oh, what does that mean? What was the last time? that? T- and you have to continue. And by the time that you, like, tune back in, the other person's on to another topic and you've just been trying to think through how you were felt about the comment they made.
1: So it creates uh, a, quite a unique self-reflective, self-analytical kind of view of the world? Hmm.
0: Well, it demands that of a human being. The only way that you can continue to operate within the world is if you have developed that analytical mind frame. I think personally, as someone on the spectrum, I identify an, exper- an alexithymic experience in my own life as being the cause for a lot of the analytical thinking that I have, and from talking with other fellow autistic folk, that seems to be a very common theme. And that's part of the reason that I wanted to be able to put this play on, because it is, we're seeing a wonderful explosion of autism stories at the moment, particularly in the mainstream, which is wonderful, our time has come. But what... I think we are still lacking is autistic voices themselves telling our stories telling hey this is the bits that we think you want to know rather than the
1: rather than a screenwriter going i've got a vague idea yeah. of what autistic behavior is like because i've seen certain tropes reflected in literature and cinema my and i'll just repeat them yeah my barber's mother's sister's
0: daughter's child is autistic and I've met them once on a train and I felt a thing and I can now base an entire, uh, like, obviously that's an exaggeration. Uh, But it happens nonetheless. Oh, God, yeah. Um, And not to pass off on the product, like the motivation and the impulse might be somewhat removed, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the products these people make are not on point. Or not explorative of a specific experience. I think if you are attending to what those traits, what the autistic behavior traits actually mean for someone's internal life, rather than just having them as a checklist. Okay, I got, do they, do they walk around and, and walk in a, in a thing? Yep. Okay, cool. Do do they flap hand in a way that's not, not a nice, okay, good, done. And not breathe further into it than that. That's when you get your problematic, unusual, non-empathetic characters that are just, just manifestations of non-autistic people's frustration with not understanding us immediately.
1: So by writing and staging uh, Alexithymia, which mm. is a co-production between your company, Atistic and Citizen Theatre, yes, this is an opportunity to create uh, by using uh, theatrical language and and theatrical stylings Hmm. to allow a non-autistic audience to gain some kind of uh, perception or understanding of neurodiversity.
0: Yeah, completely. Um, And good use of our favourite word there, neurodiversity. Um, Autistic's goal is actually a little bit deeper than that uh, and a little bit harder to explain. (laughs) Basically, we want to make audiences in viewing the art, become autistic in a way. So because autism is a response behaviorally to the world around you and the world inside you, if you change the world to match up with how you want someone to behave, say, for example, you shine a light in their face, they're going to cover their face. Like, that's immediate prompting of behaviour. And if you understand how theatrical craft can do this within a theatre space, then you are able to create a piece of work that by its very nature requires an audience to adopt an autistic frame. And I think people are a lot more familiar with this than they otherwise would be. I mean, take mobile phones. Everyone is now looking into how to be able to control attention because no one's, you know, no one's... Everyone feels like they're compelled towards checking their phone every five or ten seconds. And as someone, myself, also ADHD, I've got all the labels today. um, I have had a long experience of needing to manage impulse control, particularly when it comes to electronic screens. So... Because those elements are more prevalent nowadays, people have to think about them more. And the best way to think about them, in my opinion, is to go to the people who had those
1: concerns when there wasn't as much going on. I'm fascinated by the idea that you're creating drama, and I understand this is three short works Mm. presented under the, the, the one banner, that will allow people like myself who are not neurodiverse the opportunity to to feel to, to experience uh, somebody else's life mm. which is one of the things that I love about any form of theatre that it takes me out of myself and puts me into someone else's life and mm. someone else's world not all theatre succeeds at letting me um, empathise experience and understand mm. someone else's life but the fact that Uh, you and and this production are attempting to do that with neurodiversity and autism, I think, is fascinating.
0: I think, for me, one of the most wonderfully compelling bits about this process has been talking with our director, Jade, the the founder and the leader of Citizen Theatre. We've had plenty of discussions about craft as a means of expression and how reducible all theatrical stuff is to craft within the theatre context... And for me, I feel that there are some things that we don't quite have the craft to do yet. And for Jade, she's very much of the opinion that, and in fact a very well-informed, very experienced opinion, much more experienced than myself, that everything is reducible to craft and that's what makes theatre the most accessible and the most human form of art, that anyone is able to just pick up a book of theatre and as long as you know how to put it on, You can make it work. I think there's still some work to be done in making autism part of that book. But the fact that this show exists at all is a testament to the idea that people who do not have the experience of autism can come in, look at what we've done and go, "Okay, this is what we can do, reducing it and recreating it through the craft that we understand to be able to create this experience
1: for everyone else. You said earlier that we're having something of... uh something of an explosion of stories about and around and involving uh, people with autism. Mm. Why do you think that is happening? Have we just got to a stage where more people are aware of the diverse nature of the human brain and, and diverse lived conditions and have just gone... These stories haven't been told yet. Let's put them on stage. Let's Um, put them on screens. I think the biggest change in the past few years, and I can actually
0: use a specific word choice you made there to illustrate this. When you said with autism, a lot of people in the community would disagree with that phrasing of it. And I know it seems minor, but as we all know, minor language can imply larger things. When you say with autism, it implies that it is a thing on me like some drop bear that's just sort of sucking out and it's not connected to me and I think the reason that the glut the well the groundswell of stories is because we're now thinking of it in terms of autistic people they are a diverse kind of person there's not a person locked away inside with autism as the gatekeeper Autism is the name we give the behaviour we observe in them because of the way they experience the world. And when we've made this shift, this shift from thinking of them as something with another thing on top of it and rather just a full-blown person who's different, it becomes much more accessible within the art world to be able to go, Okay, so we can use the exact same things that we've been doing in order to, like, breathe life into characters up to this point. We just have to learn a few more things on where this behaviour comes from, what sort of narratives this can let us create, what sort of work, what sort of ideas. Really, it's just opening the door to another whole avenue of creativity and another avenue of discussion. And it was only really possible in the past 10 or 20 years, when the neurodiversity movement started in Australia, has properly kicked off and made itself the last great identity politics push of the 20th century.
1: It certainly is a push at the moment. It's something that I've become really aware of, the fact that um, alexithymia is on... uh, opening uh, tonight Tonight, after a preview last night. Mm. Um, there's also a work that's on, I think, created by St Martin's called Genius. Yes. Which I, is happening down at the
0: Abbotsford Convent. I was involved with the creation of that last year um, due to Poppy Seed. I wasn't able to contribute again this year, but their work has always been fantastic and they very much have the politics of neurodiversity down pat. I'd very much recommend going along to
1: that and to our show. And there's also just been a major uh, exhibition uh, of work around the the, the lived experience uh, uh, of neurodiversity in Sydney as oh. well. Present creating visual art environments that um, give uh, people like myself, again, an insight into what it's like to think and feel and see the world differently. Well, I've tourists to
0: us down here. I've been no, I've been nursed the grindstone for lexithymia. I must have missed that one. Usually, I'm
1: so on the ball with these. Ah, it's my job to keep, keep the finger up, try <laughs> to keep my finger on the pulse. Well, you definitely do then. Alexithymia is a new work by Tom Middleditch, which is on as part of the Poppy Seed Festival. As you heard, it opens tonight and runs through until the 19th of November at the Meat Market in North Melbourne on the corner of Courtney and Reckon Streets, North Melbourne. It's in the stables. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tickets are $35 through to $22, so it's very accessible in that regard. Um, And you can book and find out more info about not only... Alexithymia, but all the other shows, the four other works that are on as part of this year's Poppy Seed Festival, which include Romeo is Not the Only Fruit, Breadcrumbs, mm. Lost uh, uh, by Daniel Keane, and Tandem. I believe it's Lost Five. Lost Five. Uh Aha. Thank you. And Tandem, which is described as a choose-your-own-circus adventure. Yeah, that one I'm very keen to see. So lots to see in Poppy Seed Festival this year. But if you've been intrigued by our conversation about alexithymia, as I said, it's on from tonight until the 19th of November Mm. at the Meat Market in North Melbourne. Tom, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me.
0: This has been a podcast from 3 R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at
3: rrr.org.au.